bush adventure therapy. It's a wilderness adventure therapy in the US. It's a relatively new field. There's a thing called the biophilia hypothesis, which basically means that as humans, we have an innate connection to nature. And it's actually been proven that when we're in nature, it actually changes all our physiological responses. So lowers our heart rate, rebalances all of our body chemicals and things. Richard Branson, Michael Phelps, Justin Timberlake, James Carville. Wait a minute. Where are the women? Greta Gerwig, Lisa Ling, Audra McDonald, Simone Biles. That sounds like a list of highly successful titans in a variety of industries. They all have ADHD, but you don't hear much about that now, do you? You know what else you don't hear about? Are the 43% of people with ADHD who are in excellent mental health. Why aren't we talking about them and what they're doing right? I'm your host, Tracy Atsuka, and that's exactly what we do here. I'm a lawyer, not a doctor, a lifelong student, and now the author of my new book, ADHD for Smartass Women. I'm also a certified ADHD coach and the creator of Your ADHD Brain is A-OK, a patented system that helps ADHD women just like you get unstuck and fall in love with their brilliant brains. Here, we embrace our too muchness and we focus on our strengths. My guests and I credit our ADHD for some of our greatest gifts. And to those who still think they're too much, too impulsive, too scattered, too disorganized, I say no one ever made a difference by being too little. Hello, hello, hello. I'm your host, Tracy Otsuka. Thank you so much for joining me here for ADHD for Smartass Women. Before we start, I just want to remind you that our brilliant book of the same name, ADHD for Smartass Women, is out and we are killing it. You can find it at ADHDforsmartwomen.com forward slash book. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much for all of your efforts in making this happen because it would not be happening without you. I'm telling you, this is a movement. We are taking back our health care. So let me tell you all the exciting news. First, we were on CBS Mornings with Sarah Gelman, who recommended ADHD for Smartass Women as one of only five books to help you thrive in 2024. So Sarah is Amazon Books Editorial Director. She's so great. And she told me that CBS wouldn't allow the book to be put on the table with the other books because of the word ass. Yeah, she had to negotiate to be allowed to say the word once so she could actually introduce the book in the title. And I couldn't love this anymore. It's just so ADHD, isn't it? We can never just go along. We're always creating a challenge because, yeah, we're going against the grain, right? We have different ideas. So Sarah also shared that she has family members with ADHD. So neurodiversity and the importance of understanding from a neurodiverse point of view is really important to her. Thank you. Thank you, Sarah Gelman. We were also selected as an Amazon editor's pick for best nonfiction, probably how we got on CBS Mornings. And we've been number one in new releases in seven categories from behavioral sciences, attention deficit disorders, mental illness, popular psychology pathologies, medical psychology pathologies, personal success in business. But even better than that, we were number 60, 60 for all books on Amazon on any subject, not just new books. And we have been number one, not just for new releases, but for all books in the categories of behavioral sciences, women's studies, attention deficit disorder, disorders, and mental illness. Look, there's a lot more on the horizon, which I'll be sharing with you over the next couple of weeks. But thank you so much for all you've done to make this happen. Now, if you haven't bought the book, please do so to keep our momentum going. Maybe you have bought the book and you've been reading the book and you love it. And there are so many other women in your life who might be able to benefit from the book. Would you consider buying a copy or two for some of those friends and family members? Look, 
We want to change more women's lives. And you've already proved that you really help us to do that, right? And I know you want to change women's lives as well. So you can find the book at ADHDforsmartwomen.com forward slash book. And if you go there, you'll get all the links wherever you want to buy it from or whomever you want to buy it from. If you've purchased it, please then go to Amazon and leave a review. It makes a huge difference. And of course, if you purchased it from another bookseller, go leave a review there too. I so appreciate that. However, even if you didn't purchase it from Amazon, Amazon is the big review site. So please go to Amazon and review the book there. It really does make a huge difference. Finally, if you'd like to attend one of my book events, I would love to see you there. And you can find out more information by going to ADHDforsmartwomen.com forward slash happy women dinners. I would love to meet you in real life. And I understand there are still some spots left for our dinner in Los Angeles in February. There may be some spots for San Diego. I think San Diego's a lunch, but I'm not 100% sure that they'll still be available by the time this airs. And our virtual book club, I know there are spots left for that. That's going to begin at the end of this month, January. So I'd love to see you there as well. Just so you know, I don't make anything for participating in these events. Well, I sell a book, right? So my motivation is to meet you and get the word out about our book because we are literally changing women's lives together one book at a time. Now, on to the podcast. My purpose, as you know, is always to show you who you are and then inspire you to be it. And in the thousands of ADHD women that I've had the privilege of meeting, never met a one that wasn't truly brilliant at something, not one. So obviously, I am just delighted to introduce you today to Melinda Shepherdson. Melinda grew up in Western Australia, and she's passionate about nature and the outdoors. As a child and teenager, she was lucky to engage in outdoor activities and overseas travel. She loved to read travel stories and biographies, nurturing dreams of far-off adventures in exotic places. From the age of 18, she lived it, trekking in the villages of Sumatra, climbing volcanoes in Java and Lombok, visiting hill tribes and caves in northern Thailand and Vietnam. That's the only thing I've done, Melinda, is go to the hill tribes in Thailand. She's part of your whole list here, I think. <laughs> I'll stop you if I've been to one of these other places. Okay. She spent six months in India. I've not been there, and I desperately want to go. In the remote provinces of Ladakh, and Zanskar. I hope I didn't massacre those. No. <laughs> she has also kayaked and camped near Vancouver Island. Okay, I've been to Vancouver Island, skied in the Alps. I've been to the Alps, but I haven't skied there. Dived in Malaysia and Egypt and cycled in Corsica. Melinda is also an occupational therapist. She graduated with distinction from Curtin University of Technology in Perth with a Bachelor of Science in Occupational Therapy. In 1998, she yeah. also holds a graduate <laughs> diploma in sustainable tourism with a special interest in nature-based tourism for people with disabilities. In recent years, Melinda discovered the Adventure Bush Therapy Space and partnered with an experienced outdoor education specialist to create small group programs for children, including autistic individuals and those with ADHD, anxiety, and intellectual disabilities. Melinda and her husband now have three children. She loves to sing with her choir, mountain bike, surf, and teach Pilates in her home studio. I'm sure that's in your free time, right, Melinda? <laughs> the travel bug has recently been revived. So Melinda is currently planning an extended family diving and surfing holiday in Indonesia next year. Melinda, did I get all that right? You did. <laughs> Welcome. Big to hear it. Thank you. Yeah. There's so much. So, you know, if you've ever listened to this podcast, that where we start is always with your diagnosis story. So can you tell us what happened? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think like many people on this podcast, I was um, researching what my, about my son. So my son um, is autistic, he has ADHD and anxiety, and I thought I'd better look a bit more into ADHD because um, I knew quite a bit about autism and I just was looking for inattentive ADHD 
podcasts when I was driving from Perth down to Margaret River. And I stumbled across your podcast and you were interviewing um, April Kane, who's a psychologist just coincidentally in Perth. And so I was just listening away to that, thinking, oh, yeah, this is good information. And then about partway through, I just about crashed the car and realized that it was me. And it could have been me that you were interviewing. And it was really this kind of (laughs) amazing. And uh, yeah, I just couldn't believe that I'd missed that whole section about women and ADHD and girls and professional women. And so after that, I just um, binge listened to your podcast, like one after the other. Any waking moment, I was in the kitchen, the kids were like, Mom, why have you got headphones on again? And I was like, listen, I've got to learn, I've got to learn. (laughs) And I sat on it for quite a few months and then thought maybe I was making it up because I am quite dramatic. And um, another sign of ADHD, by the way, right? And then I went to a GP and, and he's a lovely GP in town. He's quite quirky um, himself. And I was like preparing myself for being told, no, you can't have ADHD. And he just went, if you think you do, you probably do. And he just wrote out my referral and I was just so thankful. And then a few months later, I think, I had an interview via um, Zoom with a psychiatrist because they still weren't seeing people face-to-face. And, and by the way, this was just last year. Yeah. And, yeah, just after an hour interview, she went, absolutely. <laughs> but then, so, yeah, it was just amazing. So I guess what I, I need to ask you is, were you diagnosed with inattentive type ADHD? She did. Um, but I've now realized that I'm completely, um, the two. Absolutely. Oh my gosh. Well, I just listened to your story and I'm like, but, but you know what, Melinda, I am even starting to question all these different types. I yeah. think that we're all variations on the same type, right? And every single person I talk to, I don't care if you are a woman and you really feel like you have, you're so inattentive ADHD. When I watch them, they're constantly moving. You yeah. know, they're snapping their pen. They're bouncing. Yeah. It, it's just not that outward climbing the walls kind of hyperactivity. Yeah. And maybe they're also not super chatty. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Like I just, that, that duff in the head, just like a million miles an hour. And, mm-hmm. and I, another time when I kind of started to go, oh, maybe this is me. I said something to my husband about, like, don't you have lots of noise in your brain? Like, don't you just have constant chatter and, and, and stuff? And it's just always there and it never stops and, and there's a lot going on. And, and he was like, nope, nothing. What? <laughs> so I am curious, what was Melinda like as a child? So I've been thinking about this a lot over the last year. So. So, yeah, diagnosed at 46. So I had a lot of years to look back on um, Mm. since then and reflect on. And uh, actually one thing to say was that there was a bit of grief as well. Like I really did feel kind of like, oh, if only I'd known as a, mainly as a young adult, um, it would have, I think, changed some of my life decisions and directions. So there's been a, a bit of like unraveling with that. Um, which I think is probably quite common. Um, as a child, I think I probably was a, a bit dreamy. I was very imaginative, very in my own world. I loved Barbies, but I think it was more that I just loved the imaginary world that I created. Um, and I was the youngest of three, so my old, I had two older brothers who were five and six years older than me. So I was, you know, a bit, bit on my own and I, I think I was, I was quite shy as a, as a kid, um, but once I warmed up or I was on a one-to-one basis, I was very confident, but in bigger group situations, quite shy. Um, at school, I think I, in the very early years, 
I just, I could read. I could read very early. So my mum was a teacher and she taught me to read probably when I was four or five. So I went to school being able to do that. And I, I did did fine. And then primary school, I probably did quite well. I'd, I'd win academic prizes and stuff like that. And you'd be how old in primary school in Australia? So like kind of five until 12 at mm-hmm. that time. So magic year, age. Yeah. yeah, year one to year seven. Um, and I was in a very tiny school. So I think that was really protective too. Um, and my mum is highly, highly organised and almost OCD about cleaning and stuff. So I had a very structured environment. So I think that was actually really protective and enabled me to just do my thing. I do look back and realise that I used to read very fast and I read lots of books and things, but I would not actually be able to tell you exactly what had happened in those books, but I just knew that I loved them. So, and that's still the same now. So I can read very fast, but I can't bloody remember what what's at the beginning of the paragraph, but I know the outward theme. And I could m- memorize stuff quite well. You could? I could, but but not if I just heard it. Like I have to be able to visually see it. So I've since realized that my auditory memory's not brilliant and and hasn't been all the way through. So kind of the early the early years were pretty good. I felt quite smart, but I and I would bounce from kind of friend to friend. So it was almost like I got bored. So I'd mm-hmm. latch on to another best friend, and then something else would come along, and then I'd bounce the next thing. So yeah, a fairly typical pattern. You know, it's so interesting. You just Triggered, not triggered, that's the wrong word. You just made me realize something. I never even thought of the difference between auditory memory and visual memory. And like you, well, I had a fantastic memory until 13. Yeah, I think me too. And now when I think back on it, what you know, so I know that like I can't even memorize one. I don't even know what they call them, but like, you know, there's a thing that a chorus in a song. Like I yeah, can't remember yeah. like one line of a chorus, even if it's a song that I absolutely loved. And so now I'm wondering, based on what you're saying, if that's related to auditory memory versus if I would have seen it in writing over and over again, I would have certainly remembered it. Wow. Yeah, I've I've realized that now. I learn something every day. Yeah. It's from you it's, all. Fascinating. And I think, again, I probably started thinking about that uh, listening to your podcast because I know you've talked before about memorizing songs. Mm-hmm. And, and I was thinking, oh, I'm the same. Like I always go, I love that song. Can't remember the name. No. Can't remember the words. Yeah. But I love it. <laughs> yeah. And, and now when you hear it back, it just triggers all of the, the working memory, right? Yeah. Like, I remember like where I was and what I was wearing and yeah. it's in there. It's just locked away somewhere, yeah. you know, until yeah. that kind of that key. So, so five to 12, no problems at all in school. You are crushing it. What happens at 13? Anything or is it the same? Um, I still did quite well, but I think I started to, um, and even when I was younger, Teachers or somebody would give instructions, but I would never actually hear them. And so I've realized that the way I've got around that my whole life, even now, is I then ask the person next to me, what do we have to do? Just because <laughs> I'm totally like that. Even but now even I if, about it. Yeah, me too. Even if I'm completely staring at them, I'm there, I'm I'm interested, I'm but it's got it's just gone. I haven't got a clue. I I did it on my son's school camp last year and the teacher just gave all these instructions and I was supposed to be a parent helper and I had to ask the kids what we were meant to be doing yeah yeah I kind of have this attitude now that that's beneath me you make it work for me what do I need to do sure so annoying oh it's funny so so yeah in high school 
I looked back on my reports. I think in high school there was more angst and I, you know, was really mm. obsessed with boys and social mm-hmm. stuff and, you know, anything that could grab my attention did. And I think I had, I started to get that really spiky academic profile. So the things that I loved, I was really good at. The things that I wasn't, I just couldn't make myself do it. I'm very good at cramming at the last minute. So um, (laughs) I really, all exams and tests and assignments and everything were always done at the last minute under this huge amount of pressure um, and anxiety. But that was kind of the only way that I could kick myself in gear and and yeah when I I found these reports and again I found the reports after I'd been listening to your podcasts and they were just classic it was if if only Melinda could apply herself more um she seems to be more interested in her friends or has so much potential just not living up to it and then in the ones that I was interested in you know aced it so yeah. it was it was a pretty typical girl with ADHD, really. So that that kind of clinched it for me, and I went, oh yeah. And then I think our final year, um, so is year twelve here, and that's where you do all your exams to get into university and things. So were you like seventeen, eighteen <clears throat> then? But yes, okay. my seventeen, yeah, and. Um, Again, I was more interested in the social aspect of life at that point and organising the school balls and, you know, all of that was much more interesting. And so I didn't, I didn't probably do as well as I could have in my final exam, but I got into psychology. Mm. So I started psychology at university in Perth. So I had to move out of home, move from a couple of hours away, um, which was all very exciting in itself. I remember packing up the car and just kind of driving out of that driveway. See you later. I'm going to the city. Um, <laughs> it was so exciting. But again, thinking about some of those ADHD things, like I turned up on the first day and I locked my keys in the car in the university car park. I turned up to the wrong lecture and was sitting there for ages and then and realized that I'd walked in like an hour late and the lecture was like, what are you, what are you, who, who are you? And then realized I was in the wrong one. I'd been looking at the wrong day. So it was just all these things that just, yeah. And it took you how long to figure out, oh, this isn't the class I signed up for. Ages. I now remember kids in the class like that, right? Yeah. And everybody would be like, what? Who are you? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. It sounds like you had no social problems. That's one of your kind of gifts or? Well, no, I would say I was very good at pretending that everything was okay. Mm-hmm. But, but I think I always felt, unless I had somebody who was a very good friend, um, I always felt quite on the outer and or just didn't quite belong. Did, people didn't quite get me. But I had a, again, it was a very small school in the bush, um, beautiful high school. And so I had really good friends there. And we just recently had a school reunion. And I, I looked around and I realized that we're all, all a bit sparkly. Ah. And, and yeah, all these right each other. fantastic. So, so it depended who it was with. And then in university, again, when I did get into occupational therapy, it was a small cohort as well. There was only 80 of us and it was really high contact hours. So it was basically like being back at high school and everyone was just lovely. So we all clicked and so that was great. But I would say when I got into situations where I didn't know people or got brought into a a party situation and there maybe weren't so many fantastically quirky folk um, I was really, I really felt like, what's wrong with me? I can't, you know, so there's, and there's been a, again, that another car crash moment was when I heard you talk about RSD. I'd never heard that. And I just realized that's completely ruled my life. Absolutely. And I think actually understanding that I now realize that a lot of my life decisions have been almost based around RSD. 
some of the big ones. Wow. Yeah. And so can I ask you, is there any trauma other than basic ADHD trauma? Um, not as a kid. So I'd say through high school there was some bullying and stuff like that. So there's a bit of trauma around, I think, again, that social dynamics. Uh-huh. Um, and that was probably when we were about 15, 16. So that was quite, that was really hard and I think still carries through. And I think, again, I understand now with the RSD mm-hmm. how, how much of an impact that actually had. And then probably more trauma as I got into adult years. So my dad died from cancer when I was in my mid-20s and then, yeah, various other bits and bobs with that and then um, having children and that whole thing, there was quite a bit of trauma with that (laughs) as well. Oh, I'm sure we'll talk about that. Yeah. (laughs) What has changed since you were diagnosed? And I know it hasn't been that long, but typically a lot changes in that first year. Huge. It was massive changes. And I don't think I realized how massive the changes were until I actually wrote it down. And I started to go, oh, well, I did this and I did this. And I, did. And I was like, jeepers. Um, so I think, I suppose, it just kicked me into gear to go, hang on. There's a lot in here. And I think I really beat myself up about I never could stick to one thing. So I'd jump from job to job or I'd, you know, I'd start OT and then I didn't want to do that anymore. So then I went and did a tourism degree and then I didn't, I went back to OT and then I didn't want to do that. So I went and studied Pilates, like, you know, this whole bouncing around caper. I want to do that. I want to do that. You know, if I, I, and then now I'm like, I want to be a doctor. I want to, like, so yeah, just <laughs> constant. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> You're like, well, how old am I and how many years will it take? I get it. Uh, so I think then I just went, well, I can't actually choose. So let's just try doing as much of it all as I can. So I basically, I set up my own private OT business because I couldn't handle going back to an organization because I get too angry. Why? Because they're not doing things the way you want them to do them. Yeah. Or just when you have to do needless, like things that, that just to me seemed pointless. And I just, I think the older I get and more experienced I get, I'm like, oh, you know, I'm a grumpy old lady sitting in the corner. So I thought it best for everyone that I don't go back and work for somebody for a while. And yeah, and I wanted a new challenge. So I set up my own OT business. I've had some beautiful friends who have done the same. So they were my mentors because I was like, there's no way I can do the invoicing software, the technology, like, yeah. I haven't got a clue. And they just have kind of nursed me through it and, and it's been amazing. And then I decided to start teaching Pilates again because I, I loved it. So the reason I'd stopped was because um, I had my youngest son. So he's now three. So I was kind of on maternity leave. And then... Yeah, so started teaching a little bit of Pilates again um, and then started on the, the bush adventure therapy stuff as well. So I just thought, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do all. <laughs> I'm just going to do it. You're going to dabble. But the thing about it, though, is you're doing it, but you've just done such a good job of incorporating like your love for travel, your love for the yeah. outdoors with the therapy and that like it makes perfect sense to me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It does. Yeah. So, and, and so I suppose the other things that changed were I re I really re-looked at how I view exercise. And I've mm-hmm. always been a massive exerciser. And I realized the times when things really went downhill were when I wasn't exercising. So mm-hmm. I I just had a new baby. And then, you know, the, the I always just put it down to, oh well, I've just had a baby. But I actually think one of the biggest things was that I couldn't exercise to the level that I used to exercise. And I used to always exercise as a weight loss thing. So for me, it was very much, you know, I, I've got body it's about image how you look issues. Instead of and, how and, yeah. you feel, right? We, we don't even focus on that. Yeah. And now, and now it's much more, no, I need this for my brain. And again, it's from listening to your podcast and the one on exercise. And I was like, right, I've got to prioritize this. And it, yeah, it's just been a great shift. And so, okay, so Melinda, can you speak to that? Because people get so upset at me, you know, well, 
you just like to exercise. And okay, I'll grant a little bit of that, but I did not like to exercise first thing in the morning before my feet even hit the ground. Like that's, you know, I go right to my little gym. My brain changed and it all of a sudden became so easy to do. It was like I would get out of bed and like a zombie walking to go work out. Did you experience that same thing with exercise? Yeah, I did. I have to say the wheels fell off a bit in winter because all the exercise that I've been doing is outdoors. So I would just get out of bed, get onto my bike and go for a mountain bike or um, go to a surfing lesson or whatever. So winter, it's been a bit hard. So I'm just trying to get right back into it again. But the difference is huge. Like I really just noticed such a difference when I was doing it consistently in the morning and now probably three three times a week I'll do it first thing in the morning uh-huh. and the other, uh, then try and fit it around kids getting to school and blah, blah. Um, so, yeah, it really, it was just significant and how much um, better I was able to focus. Um, yeah. It was amazing because I haven't taken medication yet. I've, I've sneaked a few bits from my son's pharmacy just to test it out. But yeah, I haven't just got round to making another appointment with the psychiatrist. Funny that. Does it work? I mean, I suspect that if it really worked for you, you would have gotten round to it. So is it kind of like, eh? Eh, I suppose I've only, I just took, I think I tried Vivance and I've tried Ritalin and they made me a bit jittery. Um, And so I thought, well, you know, it's only I've taken it discreetly as a one-off. So I think I need to give it a good shot. It purely is just because I, I haven't had the ability to to get back. There's so many other things going on. I just haven't right. prioritized that. But it did it did definitely help me focus on a report. So um, I'm thinking, yeah, this would be good. But again, I'm just trying to get sleep back into right because working because yeah, yeah. There's been a lot of sleep deprivation. Yeah. Oh my gosh, you're amazing. You remind me of my son who loves to travel. And he's been following this one YouTube Instagram travel influencer. He follows several, but from the time he was like 11, there's this guy, Drew Binsky, who I guess has gone to all the countries in the world. And so Drew Binsky started because he studied abroad in Prague. And so this, this year, Marcus studied abroad in Prague and he ended up visiting 12 countries. I think wow. the most out of everybody in his building because he just loved to travel so much. And I guess he was born that way. It sounds like you were born this way. What is it? Is it purely curiosity and interest? Or is it also that, I mean, I would think that your dopamine would be sky high because every day you're going somewhere new, you're meeting different people, you're in a place that, you know, doesn't have the normal modern conveniences we're used to. So you're on alert. What is it? Why did you like it or do you like it so much? I think all of that. And I think the other thing is, is that so many of those trips all incorporated pretty extreme exercise. So, Ah. you know, and I I look back and I think, you know, they're all the happiest times, kayaking for a week, hardcore kayaking, skiing for a week, um, trekking for a month, you know, across mountain ranges, like, Really, just basically oh, exercising so our, our all day. Listeners know, <laughs> I only gave like half of them. I had to cut it because there were so many. And yeah. it's interesting. You are not what I expected. You are so mellow and easygoing, and I expected that you would be like crazy <laughs> just because of all of the things you did. Yeah, it's it's weird. It's that. I suppose it's that presenting and trying to be quite calm and dab things down and keep it all contained. Um, but in here, it's like, what? <laughs> and you know what? It's all energy, right? So I think the difference between you and me is that I am much more outward. I am much more hyperactive. And so the energy is going out. Versus if it's stuck in here, you can see that it could start creating a lot of havoc, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think you need to get louder and start screaming and yelling. I think I do too. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. 
I think I just on that, I think there's been times when I have like throughout my life and then maybe somebody's cut me down a peg or two mm. and that intense feeling, again, probably RSD type stuff was so painful that I was like, oh, not going to do that again. And, and so I, I suspect it's quite a learned response, although I was fairly quiet as a kid, but mm-hmm. I, I don't know whether that's because I was in that kind of household where had quite a, you know, strong mum and a, you just didn't step out of line. So, ah. yeah. So yeah. they were more authoritarian, do you think, as far as these are the rules and... My mum wants to show... or ship out or whatever that phrase is. Yeah. I'm terrible with phrases too, by the way. <laughs> or are you put two of them together and they're totally wrong, yeah. right? Hi, it's Tracy. If you've been listening for a while... I bet you're starting to see your strengths and, dare I say, brilliance. So, can you imagine what working with me would be like? Look, we love the sparkly and the new, so sometimes it can feel like we're all over the place. ADHD women often tell me, I'm interested in so much. Which of my many interests is the one that I should actually pursue? Well, we have these interest-driven brains, right? And hyper-focus, so... If we can learn more about who we really are and what's truly important to us, our values, strengths, passion, purpose, all of it, right? We'll know exactly what we should be hyper-focusing on, and then the sky's the limit. That's exactly what we do in my six-week program, Your ADHD Brain is A-OK. It includes live coaching with me and a private community of women just like you, and it's open right now. We have two cohorts, and one of these cohorts starts on January 23rd. Wouldn't that be a great way to start the new year? Just like with my book, we're going to focus on how to fall in love with our ADHD brains. Now, if you're thinking about it at all, please take advantage of this promotion and get $500 off. But don't wait, because the program is filling up. You can find out more at ADHDforsmartwomen.com forward slash A-O-K. Use the code podcast SASS, that's S-A-S-S, to get $500 off the program just for being a podcast listener. I would love to have you join us. So now let's get on to our regular programming. Okay, so that's really interesting what you're saying is that as a child, you always felt like, There's a juxtaposition there for me. As a child, you always felt like, oh, you're too much, but yet you're so calm and peaceful. Were you not like that as a child? Were you much more? No, I was pretty, pretty level. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty calm, pretty level, but I think quite anxious, really. Mm -hmm. I think I was quite an anxious kid. So yeah, I think I was a people pleaser, really. Yeah. You know, and still am just trying to trying to probably trying to make sure that people liked me so I worked out the way to do that was to be the good good kid and then I think in in teenage years I really started to fight back and um yeah there was a lot of with my mum and I so Mm. yeah and did your brothers have ADHD do they were they I've talked to them about this um I think I think again the whole family see ADHD as as the typical bouncing off the walls mm. type thing. So mm. definitely looking at my whole family and extended family, there's there's definite um traits. Like my my dad definitely had ADHD. Mm. Absolutely. He did lots of different jobs. His workshop was always like a a mess and he was very social and outgoing mm-hmm. and yeah, but always had great ideas and was brilliant and yeah, just yeah. Definitely. And your mother kept everybody in line. Mum kept everyone in line. And uh yeah, I think there's some other stuff going on there. So um but that's a yeah. conversation for another day. Yeah. <laughs> I understand. Yeah. So I love that what you've done is you've combined your love for travel with the outdoors and your work, right? So I know that there are positive effects for kids when they're exposed to nature and adventure. I'd love to know, what have you seen? What do you know? Can you talk to us about that? Yeah. 
and I think I I probably I the way that that started was um, my brother had written an article on this this um, ladies' company, and she was taking out teenagers for kind of these mm. wilderness programs, and. I remember reading the article and I said to my brother, oh, wow, I want to I wanna work with this lady. And he said, oh, well, you can. She lives in Margaret River. So just coincidentally. So we, I ended up meeting her several times over the years and um, or over maybe the last two years. And then we started coming up with, well, why don't we look at the younger kids? Because she worked with teens and mm-hmm. that's not really my, I haven't had a huge experience with teens, but the younger kids. And so we came up with this lovely five-week program where we'd build on kids' skills for kind of four half-day sessions and then culminate in an overnight camp. And we decided that kind of nine-year-olds to 12-year-olds or 13-year-olds would be great and we kept it really small, so eight kids. And really for me it was really trying to target those children that might not cope in mainstream kind of big sports or might be so anxious about being in those sorts of things so and also that adventure element like for me because I know how much I get from that and the the excitement of doing something new and being in nature just the benefit so it really was taking my own feelings and going this is what we need to do and then there just happens to be a lot of research backing all of that as well but it was more from personal experience and also knowing that my son really benefited from being in nature and doing adventurous activities and after we'd done that, he was much more regulated. So it was doing that for the good but also almost like wanting to create something that I could get my son into because there was nothing around. So trying to get him into something on the school holidays because school holidays can be such a tricky time for parents and, and kids you know, with some difficulties. So that's how we did it. And the, we've run two programs so far and we've run some short caving programs as well because it's beautiful cave system down here. And it's just been fantastic. The The feedback has been amazing. We The recent program that we did was an all-girls one and that was great because we really um, were able to target some girls who were so anxious about being with anybody new, doing anything new, um, being in nature, and it just was so beneficial. And these girls, so there's eight of them, and probably four had diagnosed conditions of varying things, um, and the other four didn't, but probably had some more anxiety-related um, stuff going on. And it was just fantastic. So like the first one, we'd do shelter building and not tying and we'd be in, in the bush and even doing some nature-based art and things. And then the second one, we hiked with backpacks for kind of four kilometres through quite rugged, rugged bush down to a beach. And then we'd do a beach cleanup and just even all the stuff that happens along the way as you're talking, all that incidental chat as kids are walking. So what is it? They're out there in nature. Is it the fact that they're doing something that's challenging that kind of they're scared of? And so they're proud of themselves when it's over. Is it something else? Is it all of those things? What is it? Like, what does the research show? There's lots of research. There's so it's in terms of bush adventure therapy, it's a, it's a a wilderness adventure therapy in the U.S. Mm -hmm. It's a, it's a relatively new field, but there's lots of evidence just to show that the benefits are there. So um, I think the the sense of adventure and the achievement and the team building, that being cohesive with mm. um, each other. Community under, too, huh? Yeah. Yeah. So that's a definite part of it and definitely that dopamine boost when you do something exhilarating is so good um, for self-esteem and just fun. And then you've got all the other things. So there's... There's some things, um, there's a thing called the biophilia hypothesis, which basically means that as humans, we have an innate connection to nature. And it's actually been proven that when we're in nature, it actually changes all our physiological responses. So lowers our heart rate, um, rebalances all of our Mm -hmm. kind of body chemicals and things. So 
that's, I think, a huge part of it as well. The whole sensory input, so particularly for kids who might have sensory um, sensitivities and overwhelm, some of the the noises and things in nature are just much more gentle and it actually helps just regulate um, the system. So there's a, a big sensory element to it. On the other hand, for some kids, like the sensation of being in the bush can be too much. So for one girl, she was like, I just, I just don't like the scratchiness of the, the bushes if we have to walk past. I don't like the wind on my face. So there's, you know, for some kids it might be too much, but for others it actually really regulates it. You know, the soft sound of rustling in the trees, um, maybe a trickling of, of water as it goes through a cave or a, or a stream. Heaps of stress reduction. I think, now I'd, I'm not an expert on this, but just in terms of there's one bit of um, information that I thought was really interesting was that it, it actually affects the default mode network. And I know um, your chappy, what's the absolute amazing guy, I've forgotten Dr. His name. Edward Hallowell, yeah, yeah. Him, him. He talks about the, the DMS. Yeah. But, but it actually um, helps bring this calmness. Well, if you're regulating the nervous system, that's exactly what you're doing, right? You're disengaging the default mode network and getting into the task positive network. So it makes sense. Yeah. And we are part of nature. We're, you know, we're beings. Yeah. And it's just, I mean, there's so much there, but you can just see it when you're there with them in nature, just, just the benefits and how excited they are, and, but in a nice way. So, I mean, is it so obvious, like you compare who they were when they walked in and how long do these programs normally take? We've just been doing a five-week program. And so do they go every week for how long? Yeah, so we were doing every Saturday afternoon for three or four hours Okay, for four weeks. And then we would do an overnight camp that kind of went from 10 o'clock on a Saturday to two o'clock on a Sunday. Okay. And the, actually the other beautiful thing that was really amazing was um, on a Sunday morning for three or four hours, we'd have the local First Nations people, um, this amazing lady, Michella Hutchins, would come and give the kids this fantastic kind of Indigenous culture session and we'd be looking at the bush and bush tucker and she'd show us tools and tell us stories and we were doing painting and it was just amazing and the kids were just so involved so that was another really fantastic element to it just that connection with place and and bush and because they've been here for 50,000 years you know the amount of knowledge that they have is just huge yeah fascinating I'd love to end on just your thoughts around ADHD and autism and the comorbidities and how you have discovered, and again, research shows this too, that if you have purely ADHD, the success rate for medication is quite a bit higher than if you have ADHD and autism. So what can you tell us about this? Because it sounds like this is an area you're also really interested in. Yeah. Because of your son. Yeah, absolutely. And and as, as well as my son, I think now I've started to, to do more educational talks mm-hmm. on ADHD and autism. And I'm starting to talk a bit more to, um, so for instance, to his school. So I've been doing some staff education sessions and parent education sessions the other day and um, the education assistants as well. And I've recently been to a conference on ADHD, a conference on autism. And just the whole time I was sitting there, I was just thinking we, we need to do, you know, there's such good work happening with both of them, but there's such a high comorbidity and it's got, it's almost from where I'm sitting, a very unique kind of presentation and phenotype in itself. Can you tell us about that? A little bit. Yeah. So I'm not an expert. I'm going to, I'm going to put that down here at the moment, but I suppose it just really seems like there's just this fight in the brain. So this, um, so if you're coming from from kind of the autistic side, this need for order, 
and um, certainty and difficulty with change and needing things in a certain way. And then you've got the ADHD side, which is like, I don't want any of that. So it's this constant push-pull. Yeah. And it must be absolutely exhausting. And I just see it in my son again and again and again. And he's probably quite a a standard case for a a boy. Um, And I think it's also interesting because then you can see maybe if somebody has more ADHD traits than autistic traits and how that might present as compared to maybe somebody has a more kind of autistic trait coming to the front than the ADHD trait, it really does present in a different way. And yeah, the research is showing that for uh, autism and ADHD that there's only a 50% success rate with medication. And we've felt that firsthand with with Ziggy. So as as we've been trying over the years different medications, the the side effects just seemed too much for him. So it would just heighten the anxiety too much for him. So we just haven't been able to find medication that that helps um, for him. And that's I've heard that quite a bit with some people. And just how I think the other really interesting aspect of the autistic side, and I am wondering how it's going to come out with ADHD, is the the pathological demand avoidance. Uh, I don't know if you've heard much about that, but um, it's kind of seen as a trait of of autistic folk, some autistic folk, and it's just that extreme avoidance of demands and how that can present. So in kids, um, you know, you they'll get labelled as challenging behaviours and all of this kind of stuff. But in actual fact, it's them just trying to control their environment. So being asked to put your shoes on before you're going to school can actually cause the most amazing meltdown. And it's just this trying to avoid any extra demand and trying to explain that to the school is quite interesting. Melinda, though, do you think that's because of hypersensitivities? Part of it could be with the sensory type stuff, but I think sometimes it's it's an anxiety-based response. And sometimes it can be like the smallest thing that somebody could ask them to do can actually cause massive reactions. And people, so you might even not be able to ask a direct question. And even praise can be seen as a demand. So for instance, from a personal perspective, I said to my son the other day, oh, well done. You put um, Lewin's shoes on. That's amazing. And you got out of the car without me having to help you out of the car at school because he is so anxious about school. It often takes us 20 to 30 minutes to get out of the car. Um, And he just, by the way, yeah, so full on, poor kid. And so he said, oh, when you say something like that to me, mummy, so I was giving him good feedback. He said, it just makes me want to do something bad. And I just, I don't want you to say that to me. And so it's actually, that is part of PDA that even praise is too much pressure for them because then they have to perform. And so you have to rephrase how you're doing it. So maybe rather than saying to him, I could say to Lewin, Lewin, your brother just put your shoes on. Isn't that awesome? Wow. And you know what, too? It's that honesty thing, right? That can I even express this appropriately or properly, where they know why you're saying it? Yes. It's that next level thinking, right? It's not just like, you know, like another child would just be like, oh, I get praise versus these kids are just so bright that they know exactly why you're saying it. I mean, yeah. it makes sense to me. Yeah. And I, and I think the other thing is, 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 with some of these complex kiddos and, and adults, you know, it carries on into adulthood. You just can't, you, you just have to parent very differently to what standard traditional parenting models say. So there's a mm-hmm. lot of, um, I suppose, pressure and societal pressure on parents with these kids. Like, oh, you're not setting enough boundaries. You're not doing the right thing. You're letting them get away with murder. Yet, but you have like to shut just, up. Yeah, you be in just, my shoes and yes. then you can talk. 
you know, yeah. and I used to be one of those parents. I had my daughter. She was perfect. She was so easy. She slept through the night at day seven. So that's how, how pfft, right? And I remember she was in a Catholic school and there were nine girls. There were 39 kids in the class, nine girls and 30 boys. And those boys were a disaster. <laughs> and I remember literally thinking, oh my gosh, those parents need to get their crap together, right? It's, it's the parents' fault. Like it's the discipline or lack thereof. It's lack of structure. And then I had my son. And I remember being exactly where you are, where just one day it was, it was definitely anxiety. He just decided he, and I'm sure they could feel that because before he was such an incredibly confident kid, but things started to get more difficult. And I think he didn't realize why they were more difficult and why could he do things one day and then the next day he couldn't. And I'm sure they're going through all that, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. And he would be hanging on to the, we would, you know, get ready to drive out. And with him, it was like he always had to go to the bathroom, but that was anxiety. And so he would be hanging on to the door, screaming, trying to push the door open as we were driving away. And yeah. it literally came out of left field. You know, before that, he was like the happiest kid. He loved to go to school. I honestly think it was a reaction to the environment. And they had all those stupid rules. You had to stand in line before morning prayer. And if you had to go to the bathroom, you could not go into the classroom. And so the minute the principal said, you know what, you can go into this bathroom everything resolved itself. So there's usually a reason. It may not be an important reason to us, but it is to them. Yeah. So when you asked Ziggy, what was going on? Like when he got mad at you because, or he was like, I don't want you to praise me. If you ask him, well, what do you want me to do? Can he even talk about it? Or he just doesn't know. He would just say, I don't know. I don't know, even asking him a question like that will make him like go, just don't ask me questions. Just, just don't just. So it's, it's really tricky because you want them to know that, mm. that you've clocked it. Yeah. But, yeah. So it's, it's tricky. It's, it's something I'm going to be delving more into this year because I think it's definitely going to make a big difference. And even how I phrase questions now, I, I've reframed it completely. It, yeah, it's changed it a lot. Just taking the pressure off him has really did helped. did you start out with, nope, it's structure and we're going to yeah. do it this yeah. way. And then you realize yeah. this is not working. Yeah. Yeah. We have many broken windows and um, broken furniture and stuff like that. So yeah, no, that well, doesn't I think work. That's what those judgy parents who've never been through this don't understand. Absolutely. You tried all that. Yeah. You know, yeah, that and didn't work. Yeah, if it was that easy, don't you think I'd be doing it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Especially being an occupational therapist, you think? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, that's been a, that's been a journey. But uh, and and actually, just to say um, again, because of the the dyslexia things that you've talked about, he's just got a dyslexia diagnosis as well. Ah. And it's just that was last week that we finally got that. And for him, it's a massive relief. Again, he's he's like, oh, I was like, so is that, that's why it's really tricky for you to read. Like, and he said, yeah. He said, I can read words. I can spell wor words on their own. But if I have to do eight or nine or more, he mm -hmm. said, I can't remember what I've written or what I've read before. And it's because it's so much effort to just even try and spell one word and then have to do two and three. So yeah, it'll be helpful, I think, for him as we go through. Absolutely. I just honestly, and I keep saying this and I probably shouldn't, but because it's just a gut, just from talking to hundreds and frankly thousands of women at this point, is that it just feels like it's all part of one big spectrum right? Mm. And you have a little bit of this, a little bit of that. And so everybody's symptoms, you know, are a bit different. And so the, the way they present is a bit different. And you're just trying to navigate, what do we do in that instance? Because yeah. like with my son, ADHD, he's got some visual processing stuff, diagnosed with dyslexia, not formally diagnosed with autism, but he regularly says, I know I'm on the spectrum. And so many of my family members are, you know, yeah. so I know that the autism spectrum, so I know that there's something there. And he was recently tested with um, Barbara Aerosmith, 
yep, for school. Yep. You heard me talk about yep. that. Yeah, I did. And they were looking at the parts of the brain and it's like, yep, well, this is the part of the brain, you know, that is affected by, by autism. And I, I mean, you don't have to get a formal diagnosis. You can tell, but it's, it's very, you know, he's on the spectrum, you know, there's not that much of it. Yeah. Because you can just tell the way he, you know, he's, he's very social and he's actually quite good socially. But then there's certain things that just lead me to believe that, uh, yeah, there's, he's definitely on the spectrum. And I, you know, I feel like I'm probably a little bit there too. So, yeah. 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 But it's just how much of each constellation and what are the, you know, the symptoms and how does it map out? And I'm just yammering on here. Okay. No. Well, I was just going to say, I keep thinking it'll be so interesting to see how we view all these neurodivergent kind of presentations in 20 years. I'm sure it's going to be quite different and we're not going to have like this one and this one and this one. This one, it'll be kind of, yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of labels, but yeah. And why is it that so many of these kids, actually a majority of these kids, end up with some sort of learning challenge too, right? There's something different in the brain. It's all part of that same mix. So yeah, absolutely. anyway, I want to know, what are the ADHD traits that you feel are responsible for your success? I think hyper-focus is a good one. So when I really, when I like something, I get interested in it, I'll just go for it. And I've got a kind of that supercharged focus. So that's really helpful. Probably also that creativity and curiosity combined. So that uh-huh. just just the wanting to know and learn about stuff that I'm interested in. I don't care about the other stuff. But yeah. Uh, yeah. That kind of the those I think those things combined are probably and maybe there's there's that bit of bravery or that kind of um to just go and go and do things that maybe some other people might might not want to. Yeah. So that would be, right? Like hyperactivity, impulsivity, like no fear. Yeah. I I look at your list of the places you've been and the things you've done, and I don't know many people that have traveled that much. In fact, I'm trying to think if I know anybody that's traveled that much. It's kind of crazy. And I would think that in your friend group, are you the one who's traveled the most? Like you've been everywhere? Maybe the breadth of you know, I always mm-hmm. would seek out the Sumatras, the Zanzibar. Yeah. You know, I would be seeking out where can I go that's like a bit of a frontier almost. And I think it was just trying to get that thrill. But I mean, there's a fair few of my friends of, I mean, we, you know, we lived in London for a long time. So there was a lot of Europe travel yeah. and chomping around there. So um, yeah, but possibly, yeah, not that many have done all the different bits and bobs. And the thing to say is that. For the last eight years, we've been completely grounded because our second child has got severe uh, food allergies. So we haven't been able to go on an aeroplane because it's just been too scary. Oh my gosh. Like peanut allergies or what is it? No, she's, she can eat peanuts. Um, dairy, dairy allergy and walnut, almond, Brazil and pecan. Wow. And she was a really sensory kid, so she'd be the like the worst kid in the world to have allergies because she'd just pick stuff up off the ground and put it in her mouth or lick the kitchen bench or, you know, have a face on somebody's table. So we couldn't take her on a plane. But I figure she's now eight. gotten better and better as she's gotten older? A little bit, but, yeah, it's still pretty dangerous. So, um, we, but she's not licking tables anymore. So, um that's why we're thinking maybe next year we can go. But for somebody who just lived to travel yeah. the last eight years, I've kind of been like, yeah, it's been tricky. Well, and that kind of makes sense. <laughs> Your whole life changes, right? You have three kids and you can't do the thing that you love the most. Yeah. Yeah. That would be a little bit of a struggle. Yeah. 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 What? I mean, lucky I live in a beautiful part of the world where there's lots of forest and beach and you know, lots of adventurous stuff to do down here. So, you know, I'm in a good spot. Good. So, Melinda, it was such a pleasure meeting you. Where can people find you if they want to know more about you and what you do? Sure. So, I have a website that I have to say I only created because I knew I was coming on here, so I needed a deadline. <laughs> That's good to me. Yeah. 
there's a few formatting issues that we're going to sort out, but um, yeah, we I was pretty happy with it. So it's inmotu.com.au. I've been meaning to do it for six years to create something so, like that anyway. So we inspired you to get it done. I'm so proud. Thanks so much. Okay, so you have to say it again. You have to spell it since okay. you spent all that time creating it. Okay. I-N-M-O-T-U.com.au. Perfect. And on there, it's got my contact details, so my email and, and things like that. And then there's a Facebook page as well called In Motu Occupational Therapy. So that's just got a little bit of the photos of the, the kids' camps and things, which are really beautiful. They are. So, yeah, yeah, that was good. So I just want to say thank you so much because without stumbling upon your podcast that day, I don't think I'd be at this point right now. So just so many thanks. And yeah, every every week I'm like, okay, what's on this week? And I listen to it in the car. Oh. So it's brilliant. So thank you so much. It. I love <laughs> it. Well, thank you very much for spending time with us here today. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. So if you like this episode with Melinda, have I, did I call you Melissa? No. Okay, good. <laughs> Please let us know by leaving a review. Our goal, you know, it's to change the conversation around ADHD, helping as many women as we can learn how their amazing brains work so that they too may discover their strengths. And your reviews, they help. As always, you're listening to ADHD for Smartass Women. Come join me over at ADHDforsmartwomen.com. Oh, yeah, and I forgot, I have to mention in closing, please go buy my book. It is now out, ADHDforsmartwomen.com forward slash book. And if you go there, you can get all the bonuses if you buy it through our website. Just go there and they'll tell you everything you need to do. So thank you for listening and I'll see you here next week. You've been listening to the ADHD for Smartass Women podcast. I'm your host, Tracy Otsuka. Join us at ADHDforsmartwomen.com, where you can find more information on my new book, ADHD for Smartass Women, and my patented Your ADHD Brain is A-OK system to help you get unstuck and fall in love with your brilliant brain.